Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I now know beyond a reasonable doubt that Alec Murdoch murdered his wife Maggie and his son Paul after a Colleton County jury found him guilty on all four counts. He was sentenced to life in prison, and that is a big deal. My name is Mandy Matney. I have been covering the Murdoch family for four years now. This is a very special episode of the Murdoch Murders podcast. MMP is produced by my husband, David Moses, and written by my best friend, Liz Farrell. So, it happened. We got to a real guilty verdict. And this is a pivotal moment of this podcast, but not at all the end. While it was ultimately the public servants of South Carolina led by Prosecutor Creighton Waters who secured the guilty verdict, I just want to take a moment to thank those who believed in us and encouraged us to keep going all of this time. It's honestly amazing that we still have a podcast. And it's especially amazing that Alec Murdoch was found guilty of murder and will likely spend the rest of his life behind bars. The good guys won for once. And we're now in a territory that we never really imagined when we started in June 2021. We could not have gotten to this point without our awesome team, who I want to thank very quickly. Ali Pavlich and Jesse Garrett, our video partner Eric Allen, and of course, our Cup of Justice co-host Eric Bland. Neil Meredith Shelby and Oren from UTA, Justin Bamberg, whose birthday was this week, the at-large team, Greg Finch, Callie Lyons, Beth Braden, and Sam Berlin on our research team, and a special shout-out to Sam's mom and huge MMP fan, Carolyn, who also has a birthday this week, to Des Lombardo on our YouTube team, and all of the MMP Premium members and over 2 million listeners for helping support our mission to expose the truth wherever it leads. At this point, all of you are very clear on just how big of a deal this guilty verdict is to those of us who live in the Lowcountry. A Murdoch was put on trial for murdering his family in Colleton County, and the jury found him guilty. The unlikelihood of that conclusion, the unlikelihood that Alec Murdoch would be facing those charges in the first place, cannot be understated. If this were the good old boy days of Buster Murdoch, there would have been another man standing at Alec's place to take the fall. 
or there would have been no trial at all. Maggie and Paul's deaths would have been forgotten. There would have been no justice. And that is the truth of it. So this is a big day, and we hope a new day in South Carolina. We knew that he did this to Maggie and Paul. This is exactly how the case needed to end. But until we heard those four guilty verdicts read by the Colleton County Clerk of Court, Becky Hill, it wasn't an outcome that we could ever be certain about. Over the past few days, we've been reflecting on the magnitude of this case and what we hope it will mean for the future of law enforcement and prosecution in our state. More specifically, what it will mean for the future of other powerful people who break the law and assume that they can pay their way out of the situation. Until we are all held accountable to the same laws, regardless of our positions of influence, our financial portfolios, our race, our age, our gender, our sexual orientation, our political beliefs, there will be no justice in the justice system, in our opinion. This verdict is a huge step in the right direction. We hope this outcome inspires those who work within the system and those of us who do not. Those of us on the sidelines who need to call out injustice when we see it. That said, the road to Alec Murdoch being found guilty was not an easy one for anyone to travel, starting with the night of the murders. Here is Colleton County Sheriff's Deputy Chad McDowell about 17 minutes after he arrived at Moselle. You all familiar with this family? Uh, I wasn't until he told me the names. Uh, I'll fill you in later. Hearing that on body camera was a stark reminder of how it is down here, or at least how it was in June 2021. From the get-go, the Murdoch name meant something to law enforcement. It meant that whatever the scenario was, their ability to do their jobs would be affected by this outside force, this undeniable influence in some way. This undeniable influence required an army to defeat it. So today we wanted to take a look at that army and all the elements that contributed to this amazing outcome. Let's start with the most important one. This case required a prosecutorial team that could and would go the distance. One that could withstand the political pressure from Dick Harpootlian and other powerful attorneys in the state, including from PMPD itself. One that wasn't tainted by its own connection to the Murdoch name. When we talk about the corruption that the Murdoch name has long been associated with in the 14th Circuit, we're talking about complex relationships, actions, and motivations for those actions. While there is no one method to this madness, it's these complex relationships that are at the heart of the problem. We have talked time and again about how the 14th Circuit solicitor, Duffy Stone, didn't recuse himself from the case until August 2021. The date of Ellick's interview was sled when Agent David Owen outright asked Ellick if he had murdered Maggie and Paul. I feel like we can say with a lot of confidence that had the South Carolina Attorney General's office not taken over this case, we would not be talking about this guilty verdict today. We needed that big Creighton energy, and that's what he gave us. Prosecutor Crane Waters didn't flinch. He didn't mince words. He didn't miss an opportunity to remind the court just who Alec Murdoch really was, right through to the very end. Here's Creighton right before Judge Clifton Newman sentenced Alec to two consecutive life sentences. 
And I've looked in his eyes, and he liked to stare me down as he would walk by me during this trial. And I could see the real Alex Murdoch when he looked at me. The depravity, the callousness, the selfishness of these crimes are stunning. The lack of remorse and the effortless way in which he lies, including here sitting right over there in this witness stand. Your Honor, a man like that, a man like this man, should never be allowed to be among free law-abiding citizens again. So there is a long list of people that we wanted to interview after the trial. But at the very top was Prosecutor Creighton Waters, a man who put his everything into this case to secure a guilty verdict for the state. And we got him. On Monday afternoon, we talked to Creighton Waters about the trial, the justice system, and the significant work he and his team put into this case. We started by asking what were the biggest moments for him during this trial? Well, I think, you know, if I was going to kind of go in order, uh, that very first day uh, when those jurors start coming in and all of a sudden, uh, you know, it, you kind of realize that this is real uh, and this is happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you're at the edge of the bottom of the mountain and, you know, it's going to be a long climb. Uh, I just remember that first day just kind of sinking in uh, as those jurors started to file in uh, that, oh, wow, I mean, we're about to do this thing and, and it's going to be uh, such a long and, and hard fight and it turned out to be even longer than we thought. I, I think by the time we got there, we realized it was going to be longer than three weeks, but I didn't know it was going to go six. Uh, as the, uh, you know, the other big moment I remember was just getting that opening out of the way, you know, once we had a jury uh, selected. Uh, just doing that opening, uh, you know, openings tend to be pretty short, and um, but there was that storm on the way, and that was already kind of a theme that I had been using, and it just seemed so, uh, you know, perfect that that storm was coming uh, when I was talking about uh, that storm that Alec was for Maggie and Paul. Uh, and then, you know, going forward, it was just, it was such a, uh, you know, the team, we were kind of like, it was like dorm life again. Uh, you know, we were all uh, living in, in this hotel and, and we had one room that was our war room, just that's all it was. And, uh, you know, everybody's working all night and then you know, getting up early and working and working all day. And, and, uh, you know, there's just so many, uh, just such a, an interesting experience there throughout the entire process. Um, and then of course, uh, I always thought Alec would testify. And to me, that was, you know, that seemed to be a very crucial moment of the trial. And, and, uh, so that, that was that was really huge. And, you know, I had a last series of questions that I was going to ask him in that cross and having to wait for however many hours it was to kind of close with that. Uh, you know, I remember uh, uh, that, that that just, you know, being a big moment. And uh, and uh, so those are just some of them that come to mind when you when you ask that question. We also talked about the moments when things did not go quite as expected. Uh, obviously, there, you know, Jim and, and Dick and, and uh, uh, you know, are, are very good lawyers, and uh, Phil and Maggie too. And so, you know, we knew that was uh, that was going to be a fight, and that they were going to make their points. They were going to have good cross, and you know, this witness or that witness. Uh, and uh, you know, you just have to keep keep going. Uh, you know, it's, it can be in a trial like that. You know, you, you outwardly have to be calm and you know, never bothered. Uh, but certainly there's times where, you know, the defense is, 
you know, making points or cross-examining a witness and, you know, your insides are just turning, uh, but you got to just keep, keep digging and, and uh, hope that you can get your point across at the end. A few times in Cup of Justice, we have talked about the prosecution and defense as though they were sports teams. And we consider how far up the prosecution was or how many points the defense scored on a particular day. We asked Creighton if they were doing that same thing. No, I don't think that that's, that's how I looked at it. And, and I don't think that, I, you know, I felt that way. You know, obviously during the state's case, you know, we're kind of building this, this, uh, this, this narrative and, and, you know, and, and of course we're kind of, you know, the defense makes their points during cross, but we're, you know, we've kind of got the momentum and uh, during the state's case and then the defense case happens and, and then they start to do the same thing. And so you can kind of feel it shift back uh, the other way. And, and then, you know, you get the rebuttal case and you get, uh, you know, the cross of Alec and then closing and, and you feel it shifting back the other way. Uh, you know, one thing I had the advantage of doing is looking those jurors in the eyes and, um, you know, and, and of course all the members of the team did, all the attorneys, uh, you know, had a chance to do that. And, you know, you can kind of get a sense of, uh, you know, if it's resonating or not. Um, but, you know, you try not to overly think about that. I mean, all you can do is present your case and then it's going to be out of your hands. And, uh, you know, trial lawyers, I've said over and over again, we can be superstitious and, you know, you try not to dwell too much on that because the evidence that you have is the evidence you have. You're going to present it uh, regardless. And and so if you get yourself bogged down and to worrying too much about, you know, where's the meter right now, uh, you know, I think you can get off your game. Uh, you just focus on getting out your evidence and then, you know, bringing it home in the end. We talked about what it was like for Creighton and his team to try this case in front of a worldwide audience, something none of them had experienced before. Well, you know, there's obviously no, never had an experience like that, and, and I don't know that any of us will again. Um, you know, obviously there's still cases pending, and, and, and this thing is, uh, has a lot of, of heads to it, and I, I can't comment specifically on anything pending, but, uh, um, but this, this was obviously the big one, and, uh, you know, the, the scene outside with all the media tents, uh, all the people that, that showed up. Uh, we had, you know, really great support from the public. A lot of smiles. The community was great. Um, uh, so it was it was absolutely uh, unique. Um, but again, to go back to the sports analogies, this is something else we talked about. You know, I've heard players uh, in the Super Bowl say that you know when they get ready for the Super Bowl, there's a lot more nerves and uh, you know there's so much more emphasis to that. There's so much more media attention and all this other uh, stuff going on. But then when you get out there and you run your first play and, and make your first, you know, tackle or catch or whatever it is, take your first hit, uh, then it's just another game. And that's what we try to do. Obviously, we're not entirely immune to all of that. It's completely different. Uh, but, again, the more we can normalize this as a trial, a very complex and difficult trial, uh, but just being a trial and, and sort of, just focus on on handling court as we would, um, you know, the better we could. Uh, obviously, that's not entirely successful. We we um, you know there there was just such a scene around there. Uh, you know, I remember first arriving on Saturday, and there was only one food truck truck out there, and it was like a elephant ear truck, like you see at the fair. And I remember joking. <laughs> I even joked this to Judge Newman once, so why don't we just go ahead and get a roller coaster and a Ferris wheel out here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, but I, I will say this. Everybody was really great. Um, 
so many people gave us encouragement. Uh, so many members of the community, the, the people at the hotel were great. We made friends uh, with these folks, and, and it was actually kind of, uh, you know, feeling a little bit nostalgic when I was packing up my hotel room for the last time. And in case you were wondering whether he knew that people were cheering him on by calling him BCE, i.e. Big Creighton Energy, here's what he had to say about that. Well, uh, yeah, I know that there's some t-shirts out there, and, and I've heard, I've been told, Liz, that you're the one who kind of coined that term. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I've heard some of that. And, uh, you know, I started, I got, I did my first tweet ever on uh, Saturday, and, uh, you know, I, obviously I've seen that term used in some of the responses that people have been sending, and uh, I think the Friday, uh, you know, there were, there were some people wearing that shirt, uh, and I went over and, and uh, spoke to them and took a picture with them. I figured I couldn't, uh, I think I was doing an interview or something, I, I couldn't just let them sit there and watch and not go over and speak to them, so, but yeah, I guess that is the thing now. Because, you know, that trial was so exhausting, and I, I still, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I know I still haven't recovered yet and ended up losing, like, 10 pounds. But, you know, having that term out there, you know, I, you know, sometimes when you had to dig deep, uh, you know, you realize that, uh, you know, that, that you had to, to give that energy, right? And uh, so that, you know, we tried to sustain that. And, again, you know, this was a, a, a big team, and uh, it, it had to be a big team because not, not one of us could have survived if it was just one or two of lawyers and a couple of staff members. You know, we had to have a big team so that we all could have the energy to make it through that process. And, you know, everybody had their role. You saw them all in action. The staff members, you know, don't get up and speak as much, but they are crucial, sometimes even more crucial. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think any of us could have made it if we didn't have every single member of that team that was there. Creighton's team was made up of investigators, prosecutors, paralegals, and other support staff. In addition to the Attorney General himself, Alan Wilson, SLED, and SLED Chief Mark Keel, along with other law enforcement agencies, it was this team that was crucial to getting us to guilty. And among the more experienced members of the team, there were a lot of firsts, which was really cool to hear. Well, everybody did great. Uh, you know, um, I, you know, let me just, I don't want to leave anybody out because everybody had their, their moments. Uh, you know, obviously the cell phone evidence was key and John Conrad did a great job of some of that stuff. You know, I had uh, Peter Rudolfsky testify. I think that was the first time he had ever testified in General Sessions Court. Johnny James is, is a great attorney, really kind of my, you know, has, has been my right-hand man in the white-collar stuff. Uh, he has a lot of courtroom experience, uh, but that was, you know, his first witness in front of a jury. Uh, Carson Burney was our forensic accountant. He did amazing work, as you know, on all this white-collar stuff, which, again, is still pending, and Alec is presumed innocent and entitled to, to a fair trial, and I don't want to be clear. But Carson, you know, testified and got qualified as an expert for the first time. Savannah did a, a great job on some really tough crime scene uh, stuff. You know, we even got um, my mentor and boss, Zelenka, up there, uh, you know, and I thought that was that was good. You know, it, just there were moments for everybody. You know, my paralegals and staff members keep me going. I, I couldn't survive without Carly. Um, she's just absolutely amazing. Uh, Izzy is my investigator, and not only did he have to follow me around all the time, but he had some really good insights, you know, and just really provided uh, some great insights. And then David Fernandez is my right-hand man and, and just did some, some really, uh, did a great cross, I thought, on, on Sutton, their expert, among other things in this case. And then I can't leave out uh, SLED. I mean, 
misled and I get to lead the state grand jury. And, and of course, this was not a state grand jury case. The white collar stuff is. But what the state grand jury does best is, you know, it's that partnership of the AG and SLED, you know, on the front end of cases. And, you know, in this particular case with the murders, we didn't get involved until uh, September, uh, but uh, um, September of 2021. But, you know, we have that, that experience working together with our partners at SLED. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to leave anybody out because, uh, you know, all those agents uh, did such a great job. Um, you know, Colleton County was great. Uh, Kenny Kenzie was, uh, was awesome. Uh, so it's just, it was such a team effort and, you know, everybody was coming to that hotel. We were, you know, working, as you can imagine, you're working 12, 15, uh, I think one time I worked 21 straight hours and everybody's really pulling their weight. So there was a lot of fun too. Um, I think everybody else probably got to go out a little bit more and go to the food trucks more than I did and, you know, maybe have an occasional soda pop or two, but, um, but we, we had a good time and, and it really was like being in college again, just living dorm life and staying up late and cramming, uh, just, just, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And let me do this before I, I go on. I, I don't want to leave anybody out and I'm not intending to, uh, Danielle and Shane were just awesome and wrangling witnesses. And I don't want to leave out Metters who I've known for years. Uh, I started my career as doing a, uh, as an appellate lawyer and did some of his bigger trials on appeals, such as Dwayne Herring and Christopher Pittman. Uh, and uh, so we've known each other for years and, um, you know, reconnected at the at the annual prosecutors conference, which is in September, and brought him in. And obviously, uh, you know, Metters, uh, you know, and his Baptist preacher, I think he's the son of a Baptist preacher, uh, in his Baptist preacher style, uh, you know, just uh, did great with the witnesses that he did and obviously did that rebuttal argument. And so that was great. So, Definitely, I you know as I started going through the litany people, I don't, you know I did enough of them that I wanted to make sure to cover everybody, and, and everybody was just clutch. Because we felt strongly that the justice system in South Carolina was on trial, along with Alec Murdoch, we wanted to get Creighton's thoughts on this. Here's what he said: You know, I'm a I'm a firm believer in it, and uh, I, it's not perfect, and uh, you know we all know that. Um, but I, you know, working with the state grand jury is really unique because grand juries uh, and, and the way the state grand jury operates, it's not like the county grand juries. You know, we get into great detail in our cases before the state grand jury because it is an investigative procedure. And so we, we uh, you know, we, we examine witnesses. We put in a lot of our testimony and we get to, because it's an investigative procedure and we serve as the legal advisor for the state grand jury, uh, we get to interact with the jurors more. And that, that can really help you understand um, you know, how, you know, individual jurors from various walks of life view things and how, uh, more importantly, they end up interacting with one another. Uh, and so that, that to me has just strengthened my uh, belief in our system um, and, and as a general rule, and that's not to, to you know, wear rose-colored glasses, but I just think that there is a, a common collective wisdom that comes with getting 12 folks uh, off the street and putting them in a room and, and having them make these huge weighty decisions. And, uh, and um, so uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that kind of reaffirmed my faith in all of this. You know, we, we knew that, you know, this people asked about change of venue and that sort of thing. And, you know, where are we going to go? Right. I mean, that might've worked 20, 30 years ago to go to Greenville or, you know, Pickens or something like that, but we could have gone and picked a jury in Ohio and probably people would know about it there as well. 
and so I'm always a firm believer in letting the community where the crime occurred have their voice. And, uh, and so, you know, the fact that we got through that process and the manner in which it went, uh, you know, it really, uh, reaffirms, um, you know, kind of a faith I have in, in, in the system. Uh, and, you know, I think that, uh, as we look at, some of the things that, that we could do better as far as just the process itself, um, you know, obviously having this kind of intense media attention, one thing I've been trying very, very hard, uh, and I think early on took some criticism from you folks, I was told, uh, you know, about just trying to protect um, some of the evidence in this case, uh, particularly the autopsy photographs and, and the crime scene photographs. Um, you know, we have to remember this case is about what happened to Maggie and Paul. Uh, we have to remember that this family has has suffered, uh, regardless of any uh, particular family member's viewpoint of the case. And, uh, you know, I just, I wanted to try to make sure that because of the intense interest that, you know, there still was some dignity and privacy for them. And, you know, I, I think towards the end there, some photograph got out and, uh, you know, that was very concerning to me. And, and so trying to integrate that part better um, and then, you know, these old courthouses uh, and courtrooms are really designed for something like that. So everything was just so tight. We were on top of each other. Uh, you know, the, the sound system didn't work right the, the first day. So we actually went and got a Fender PA system like you would use to play a, an acoustic, you know, set at a coffee shop or something. And actually got a, went to Best Buy and got a, a little karaoke machine that actually had flashing lights that kept having to turn off and, and break that out. So that was, <laughs> That was actually our sound system throughout the trial. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there, there, were, uh, there were things that we thought we had, we planned for and, and, you know, but we still had to adapt. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, in the end, you know, I think I said at the press conference the night of, uh, you know, I felt whatever the outcome that, you know, South Carolina had, had you know, thinking back at some of the other large trials that have gotten a lot of national coverage, I, I thought, I thought on the whole, the, the court staff, uh, you know, Judge Newman is amazing. Uh, the, the bailiffs, um, and even in both sides, the prosecution and the defense, I thought, you know, we, we made a good showing of ourselves of a, of a process, uh, and, and how it, it could, it could work. We also talked about the immense resources that the state dedicated to this case and why it was necessary. Well, uh, so, you know, there's there's a lot of parts to that, and, and I think that, that um, that's a great point. If, if there is a, a fair criticism of our, our justice system is that money and resources still uh, do matter. This case is completely unique, but this is what the Attorney General's Office and, and its prosecution and, and state grand jury sections do. Uh, and uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, we're going to devote the appropriate resources we think are necessary to to try a very complex case. Uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, again, the, the white collar cases are, are uh, still pending. And I want to be clear, Alec is presumed innocent until proven guilty and has, and has every opportunity for a fair trial. But when you have um, allegations, you know, one of the things state grand jury we do a lot of is corruption and uh and, you know, public corruption and complex uh, narcotics rings and things like that. But when you have allegations that go to sort of the heart of the system of which we're part, um, you know, there, there, there's value and an important, important interest to be explored and vindicated there. And, 
um, you know, I, I think that that this case can have has a, an immediate effect on what is most important, and that was addressing uh, Alec and what he did to Maggie and Paul. But I think it also has uh, implications, or could have implications beyond that, um, and those are important. And you know, if if uh, you know things about the system can be exposed that um, make it better uh, and make it fairer for all. Um, then I think that that's a good thing. They filed a motion for a speedy trial, and the state said we'll be ready in January. And Judge Newman said, "Well, that's fine with me." And so court administration um, scheduled it, and that's that's why this one, uh, you know, moved a little bit quicker uh, because we do sort of uh, operate, um, you know, as a you know as a as a different in a different sort of procedural mechanism than the regular solicitors' offices do. Um, but also because of that, we're always the visiting team, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we have a statewide practice, and, and um, so it's just a different thing. We asked Creighton how he feels now that the murder trial is over. I, I think I'm still a little bit numb uh, by all of this. Um, you know, I I, uh, I don't know if I've already said this in this conversation, but... Um, you know, my, my eyes popped open at, you know, around five o'clock this morning and I'm trying to convince my body that, you know, we don't have anything we have to do uh, today. And my body's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man, but you got to get up right now. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't know that it's really uh, sunk in um, yet. You know, Thursday we got that verdict, uh, you know, about seven o'clock or whatever time it was. And, and then there was kind of a whirlwind there at a press conference and, and, uh, you know, but I still had, uh, you know, I still had court the next morning. We had a sentencing the next morning, and then I knew it would be a whirlwind day of, of you know, media appearances and that sort of thing. So, you know, I wasn't really able to, you know, too much have that celebration or that, you know, that, that you know, that chance to really unwind. Uh, and then, you know, then kind of went into the weekend, and you're you're getting back uh, back home, and you know, seeing everybody and, and trying to integrate yourself back in. To your your real life and so I, you know it's still kind of new and i just i don't know that i've even really fully adjusted back or even had a chance to to accept or or you know really uh internalize what that verdict meant and i i just know that i remember thinking when i heard guilty uh that you know how proud i was of this team and the reason was is that you know i had everybody working so hard for so long and i think we would all have been okay if we just put it all out there you know and once you do that you put it in the jury's hands and know that you you've done the job and, and the best you could do and i think we'd have been okay with that but you know knowing that all that work uh actually resulted in that verdict and a, and a, a voice for maggie and paul and that all that work i put everybody through you know, came to a successful conclusion. Uh, that was that was probably the thing that I immediately felt when I when I heard guilty. We also wanted to know whether he had any sense that a guilty verdict was coming. You know, you don't count your chickens till they hatch. And uh, when Miss Becky said the word guilty, uh, you know, that's that's the first time I really permitted myself to to know. And again, my first thought was, I'm not sure. I'm glad I didn't make everybody work like this, and uh, and we end up not having a successful uh, result, even though, again, I think we would have all been proud of ourselves and, and thought we'd done all we could do. 
And because many of you asked, we asked Creighton about the significance of that Goosey, I mean Gucci receipt. Actually, Goosey, you know, that was just something that I I kind of noticed on the fly um, as we were going with Jeff's testimony. Um, that was one of the things that he had recovered in the trash. And uh, so I just kind of just pointed that out. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, they, they, they spent a lot of time on the, on the finances, but I, I think it was important. Um, you know, and it wasn't as simplistic as the, the feds tried to make it seem. Uh, I think what we tried to show was just a myriad of factors, um, that were going on in this man's life, um, pressure points from various, um, parts of his life, a life that no one who was close to him knew, uh, and that they were all uh, sort of converging together um, as we moved to, to June 7th. And, you know, well, we never know exactly what was going on in his mind, and not unless one day he decides to tell the truth about it. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, it was important for the jury to sort of know uh, all those things as they, as they approached and, and uh, just to kind of get a sense of, you know, how this could happen, um, you know, I, and I think I asked him if he was a family annihilator, um, and, you know, there, there is, there is certainly a concept out there of a, you know, successful middle-aged man, but who's facing, um, ruin of his life, uh, family breakup, um, substance abuse, uh, you know, in this particular instance, you're talking about, um, possibility of destruction of a family legacy that was very important to him. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of factors that were all converging together. Uh, and I certainly argued and don't think it's coincidental that those were converging on June 7th. Because the trial was so widely watched, both the prosecution and defense were exposed to much more criticism than they had ever been before. So we asked Creighton about how they handled that new level of scrutiny when literally the entire world was watching them. Well, you have to do it. And I, you know, I, uh, you know, I certainly have plenty of friends that, that listen to y'all's show. Uh, Manny, I think this is the first time in life I've ever spoken to you. And, and Liz, I think I spoke to you briefly like one of the first days um, of court. Uh, and, you know, I just, I, you know, um, I, again, I have a lot of friends that, that listen to your show, but it, this is, I never have. And uh, I generally try to avoid that media, I avoided it. I wasn't reading many stories about it. Um, I wasn't, certainly wasn't watching the TV. Um, people would tell me things. Uh, for example, you know, there was a lot, uh, you know, and certainly people can have different perspectives about, you know, closings and about cross and, and, and financial stuff. Uh, we had a reason for doing the things that we did the way we did them. Uh, and so yeah, I try to just, I just wasn't paying attention to that. I, I think uh, I, we always are. And I would look for constructive criticism from within the team, from our law enforcement partners, um, you know, because we are trying to get, get it right. And you have to be willing to be self-critical to do that. Uh, but I couldn't worry about, you know, what somebody on, you know, some show, uh, you know, on TV uh, was saying, uh, or, you know, some, uh, you know, lawyer in another part of the country who's never tried a case in South Carolina and doesn't know, you know, how South Carolina processes work and how South Carolina jurors are. Um, you know, this isn't 
Hollywood. It was real life. And so I, I didn't pay any attention to any of that. Um, I just kind of focused on, on, you know, putting this case out there and, and that's what we did. Finally, we asked Creighton, what was the biggest lesson that he learned throughout all of this? That's, uh, that's probably something I should have a quick answer for. I'm, I'm not sure that I do. Um, you know, again, the, the biggest, I think, lesson from all of this is that um, the system can work, and I think it works well in South Carolina. Uh, I think that um, we've seen other, you know, trials nationally that have gotten a lot of public interest and things, you know, did not go well, uh, or the process didn't, you know, quit itself as well. Uh, but, um, I think that's really the biggest lesson. You know, I'm, I'm a, a, a lifelong resident of the state and, uh, you know, I love this state and I love the people here. And, and I, I think that there's a lot to love about, uh, our, our legal system and, and the men and women who are part of it. And I just, I think that whatever the result would have been, I think that we have we acquitted ourselves well on the international stage and maybe that's that might be the biggest takeaway as I just kind of shoot from the hip on that we'll be right back did you know socks tees and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters bombas knows and they're doing something about it making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every sold item. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. Once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Personally, I love their running ankle socks for my morning treadmill desk walks. It's like there are little pillows under my feet. Trust me, so comfy. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash Mandy and use code Mandy for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Mandy and use code Mandy at checkout. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In addition to BCE and his team, the road to a guilty verdict included sled agents who held their own on the stand and who stood up to Ellick's defense team. Here is Agent Ryan Kelly in an exchange with Dick Harpootlian about the first time Ellick was arrested. Ellick came back to South Carolina from rehab in Florida, and instead of adhering to the deal he had made to turn himself in, Ellick did what Ellick wanted and SLED had to take action. Dick tried to spin this into Alec was being cooperative and SLED was being aggressive, but Agent Kelly was having none of that. The agreement was for us to meet you and Mr. Griffith with Mr. Murdoch, that no stops be taken from Orlando to Hampton. Um, we uh, encountered Mr. Murdoch and Buster uh, pulling into the driveway of uh, the Almeida property. So outside of our agreement, so Mr. Murdoch was taken into custody 
um, as soon as he arrived at Almeida. Well, um, so perhaps if we weren't going to Orlando, stopping to seek, get his lawyers before he surrendered himself would have been a violation of our agreement? Uh, no, our agreement was that Mr. Murdoch was to go from Orlando directly to your custody. Um, Buster, uh, I don't fault Buster. I don't think that he was um, doing anything that he thought was, was wrong. He was just listening to instructions. But, you know, we were supposed to meet him with you. And he showed up at his mom's house, so we, are, we he was placed into, under arrest at his mom's house. Well, we showed up at mom's house as y'all were taking him away, right? After he was arrested, yes. Right, but, I mean, we were there minutes after you arrested him, right? Well, yes, because they called you. So, um, And I think I might have called you to tell you that we were arresting him as well. Right. And then there was Agent Peter Radulski, who was the last witness presented by the state before the defense got to present its case. Agent Radulski stood his ground. Here, he is telling Philip Barber that Alec's behavior that night was far from normal. So as an investigator, do you, um, do you think it would be terribly unreasonable that after calling other family members, someone would call the person who is the best friend of the dead son, who had multiple missed messages and calls, and even a call coming in during the 911 call, is calling that person to ask What's, what happened, what's going on, is that, to you as an investigator, an unreasonable thing to do after calling other family members? I would, as an investigator, I think that would be very odd, given the scene and the whole situation, that you're on the phone constantly, yes. That you're standing there next to your, your dead son, his phone is ringing for yep. someone, and you mm -hmm. call that person after calling other people. Yes, be because I, I am standing over my son and wife, and just witnessing that for the first time, I would think that would be... To have someone on their phone constantly like that, right after, given the, the scene and the situation, yes, as an investigator, I would think that is very It wouldn't be someone odd. trying to find out what happened. At that moment, that would be the last thing that would probably come through my mind as an investigator, looking at the scene, is trying to figure out what happened minutes after I discover it. I'd be in a state of shock if that was me personally. And speaking of a state of shock, I think you have in the timeline later on, he reads some spam text message about, I think there's a picture of a woman in a bikini. I wouldn't call it a spam text message. It's from Michael Gunn, who would be one of his friends. A group text. A group text, yeah. And then he Googles the name of a restaurant in Edisto Beach. Is that correct? That is what comes up on his phone extraction. And doesn't he also call a videographer he hadn't spoken to in years? Uh, page 42, Brian White. Last entry. That's what the data shows. So he would seem to be in a state of shock. He's None of that makes any sense, does it? You're not going to Google I'm the name not, of a restaurant after you find your son murdered. I'm not Alex Murdoch. I don't know what he was thinking at that, that moment. Probably wouldn't be on my phone. Really? You wouldn't be calling family? <laughs> I might be calling family, but I want to be The testimony was that Rogan was, was family. You ask a question, if you want him to answer, you have to give him an opportunity to answer. Proceed. I would not be Googling and doing other things with my phone, no. You, you don't, you think he was, do you believe he was Googling a restaurant or do you think he was fat fingering the phone because he was in shock? I have to go off of the data and that's what the data shows. And you believe that calling family and calling someone that the prior testimony was was like his, uh, another son is unreasonable in the circumstances? I would say so, yes. 
given the fact that you just arrived to the scene, yes. Agent Rodolski also proved to be too smart to fall for Phil's tricks. So you don't know if a very fast peak speed was simply uh, gunning it past another car? I do not. But at that, that late night hour, I would think that'd be with, you know, the area, not a lot of people out. I mean, that's just total speculation. You don't know if there's another car. Just out like yours is total speculation right. that he passed someone. That'd be know. correct. Yep, I do not know. Yeah. You don't know if there are any other cars out there to pass. You don't know if he was passing another car. You just don't know, do you? I do not, just like with your first question. Also important was having witnesses who stood up for what was right and who told the truth about their experiences. Here is Mark Tinsley, a.k.a. Zero Dark Tinsley, a.k.a. Tiger Tail Tinsley, telling it like it is to Phil Barber in an in-camera hearing. I think it's fair that to say that there wouldn't have been an explosion on June the 10th, but the fuse was lit the moment that that information became available in the case. Not as much to me, but certainly to Danny Henderson, who would have, like the phone records, like some of the other materials, reviewed it before I got it. And Ellick would have known that. I mean, in that analogy, isn't aren't you really saying the fuse was lit and the, you were going after his assets and that fuse was going to go down until trial because you're going to go to trial against him and that's when the fuse would burn down? I think the fuse was lit when he started stealing money. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't lit on, it wasn't going to be lit on June 10th. They're certainly getting a lot more oxygen. Right. But it's, it was lit way before and it was going to keep burning well after June 10th. I, I don't know about well after, but it, it, it wouldn't have been judgment day on June the 10th, but, but he would have known it was beginning to unravel. And here's Dr. Ellen Reamer during her rebuttal testimony. Dr. Reamer is the medical examiner who performed the autopsies of Maggie and Paul. Dick so badly wanted her to agree with what the defense's witness was asserting. The defense's witness relied on photographs and a textbook to reach his conclusions. Dr. Reamer's insistence on remaining factual put Dick in full yammer mode. Your, Your Honor, I'd ask you, I would ask you to answer. tell the witness to be responsive. Um, she is going on a diatribe. Uh, excuse me. I'm asking the court to instruct her to answer the question as specifically as she can. She, uh, she goes off on tangents and, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, you may continue answering the question. You remember what the question was? No, that's your question. Is this series of shots from the book depicting a contact wound? I think I, that's what I understand. Yes. Yes. Okay. So where, if you step down here, show me, please, where the contact is with the body or the head. Here, let me give you this pointer. Well, the contact would be at the first. Right here? Yes. Well, what's it contacting? It's not, it's just a theoretical um, depiction. It's a theoretical Is that depiction. what the book says? Yeah. Well, go ahead. I, I don't recall the exact. Why don't you read it to me? Well, why don't you tell me? Is that a contact wound? I don't know what this is. This is, this is. That's um, a shotgun. That's a shotgun. That's a shotgun being fired. Those okay. are the pellets coming out. Object. Those are the pellets. Yeah, I think, you know, this is, 
this is um, a book, you know, showing um, showing um, the, 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 the series of steps after a shotgun is fired. If but it has nothing to do with what I found in the body and does not help me determine the direction of the wound. All right. So and I'm not going to describe to you. You can read it in the book. I don't remember what how he says all of this. And Dr. Kenny Kenzie, another South Carolinian we are proud to claim, did not give Jim Griffin one inch. Jim wanted Dr. Kenzie to validate the defense's theory on two short shooters coming to Moselle, one of whom shot Paul from inside the feed room. So you say there are more defects on the door? Yes, sir. Did you document any defects that you observed on the door? I got him in a photograph. I can show you. I mean, okay. what other documentation did I need to do it to verify that that's the same door? No, no. I'm just talking about other pellet marks. On yeah, the there door. are other pellet marks on there. Yes, sir. You just cut that one down. But if you move up a little bit, you can see the little indentions right there in the paint. All right, back it up, Doug. Right above the hinge, right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. There's several of them there. And, and then you see this pellet here in the... Uh... I did not see that, but I'm vertically challenged, and, and I wish I could have looked up and saw that pellet, but I did not see that pellet lodged in that door frame. But I'm glad, Mr. Maybach, Pombach, however you say his name, I'm glad he found it because uh, that even proves my point a little bit more. Well, the, uh, so I'm going to ask you, mm -hmm. according to your shot angle, how would a pellet get there? It's... Really? I mean, it, it, the cone, it's a cone. Mr. Griffin, I've already described how shot pattern works. It's a, it's a cone. We'll be right back. And then there were the emotional testimonies. The people who you could just feel their fear radiate from the stand. The people who didn't have to say much to tell us what kind of a system they were used to and why it was so terrifying to be testifying against Alec Murdoch while his family stood behind him. The people who were very brave to tell the truth. Ever since the trial ended, I've watched several interviews with jurors and they mentioned that they believed the prosecution's witnesses were credible. And this on top of the kennel video catching Ellick in the big lie, which was the most damning piece of evidence, they thought. Thank you, Bubba. But I think these emotional testimonies that were just so authentic and heart-wrenching, those were the ones that stick with us and stuck with the jurors as they made their decision. There was Shelly Smith, who spoke up at great personal risk to her continued employment with Ellick's mother. Her testimony was the first to establish that Ellick was the type of person who would suggest someone lie for him in conjunction with an offer to help the person financially. And I have to ask you for the record, uh, um, this Alex Murdoch who came and saw you the night of the murders with the shorts and the shirt and the sperry type loafers on, is that him over there? Yes, sir. Okay. And is he also the person... Uh, that you said, told you he'd been there 30 to 40 minutes? Yes. Um, and is he also the person you saw in the house that night with some kind of blue vinyl that you said consistent with this picture we put in? Mm -hmm. Is that him? 
Yes. Thank you, Jessica. There was Blanca Simpson, whose testimony bolstered Shelley's, again showing that Ellick thought nothing of getting people on the family's payroll to lie for him. And uh, he said, come here, sit down. So I went in the living room, I sat down, and he was pacing back and forth in the, in the living room. And he said, I got a bad feeling. He said, I got a bad feeling. He said, something's not right. And then he said, um, he said, well, you know, um, there's a, um, a video. There was a video that was out. I hadn't seen a video. And he said, you remember the shirt I was wearing, that Vinnie Vine shirt? Those were, that's what he said to me. And uh, in my mind, I was saying, I don't remember Vinnie Vine's shirt. It was the polo shirt. But I didn't mention, he said, well, you know what, I was wearing that shirt, he said, um, you know, in the, um, that day. And still, I, I was just, I didn't say anything, but I was kind of thrown back because I don't remember that. I don't remember him wearing that shirt that day when he left. I know what shirt he was wearing because I fixed the collar, and the collar's a different material. And I don't know what a Vinnie Vine shirt is. But when he left that day, was he wearing a Vinnie Vine shirt? Or was he wearing the collar you've described? It was a polo shirt. Oh, polo. Paul's friend, Rogan Gibson, someone who has remained loyal to the Murdoch family for his entire life, was the first to tell Sled that Alec was down at the kennels around the time that Maggie and Paul were killed. Alec denied that Rogan had heard his voice, but in March 2022, when Paul's phone was finally accessed, Sled discovered the kennel video. Rogan was the first on the stand to positively identify the third voice in that video as Alec's. And did you hear, recognize the voices on there? I did. Did you recognize the voices of your second family? I did. And what voices did you hear? Paul's, Miss Maggie, Miss Alec. And how sure are you now? Positive. 100%? That's correct. Alex's former PMPAD co-worker Mark Ball testified for the defense, but quickly became the state's witness when he too offered proof that Alec had consistently lied about being at the kennels from the start. He said that he ate dinner, laid down on the couch, took a nap, and then left to check on him. Now you know that's not true from seeing the kennel video, right? I do. And that wasn't the only time he told you that, is it? No, I, at least three times. At least three times. And this would be over the subsequent days? Yes, sir. Subsequent conversations that you had with him? Yes, sir. And he was always clear that he never went down to those kennels after, he, after they ate dinner? Another former partner of Alex, Ronnie Crosby, a man who clearly loved Paul Murdoch testified that Alec had lied to him as well about being at the kennels. On rebuttal, Dick Harpootlian tried to paint Ronnie as a man with a vendetta against Alec. Ronnie didn't waver one time. Sometimes body cam, but, and, and a lot of times written statements. And written statements from witnesses that saw it happen. Correct. And so when you interview those people, they have the benefit of reviewing whatever you have to help them get a better recollection of what happened, correct? That's, that's correct. Okay. So the instance you're talking about where um, Alec told you he turned him over before um, he made the 911 call, whatever it was, I'm not quite sure. Before, I think, is what you said. 
Um, if that would be inconsistent with something he says later on, after having reviewed other people's statements, looking at video, um, that would not be unusual in your business. I think you just said it would not be unusual, correct? You, strike you, you, strike you, you, you're, strike you're trying to take me somewhere that you probably don't want to. Oh, I, I, no, I think I want to. Answer the question. Withdraw the question. Let me ask you this question. Maybe just get to the to the meat of matter here. Have you had to come out of pocket to pay back the money he stole? Yes, and if how, you, how much? I, I don't tell me you don't know. Well, we're still counting, Mr. Harpootin. Well, how much have you paid so far? We have had to uh, borrow millions to pay back. No, how much have you had to come out of pocket? Well, when you borrow it, you got to pay it back, and I couldn't tell you how much has exactly been paid back uh, as of we sit here today. But Thank yes, and, and if you're implying that I would come in here and somehow shade truth in any way because of that, that's... I would take high offense with that, Mr. Hart Putin. I'm concerned about your high offense. Are you angry at him for stealing your money? I have no feeling one way or the you other. I don't have any feeling about Alec Murdoch betraying you and stealing your money. You're, I, I admire you. I don't know that I could look beyond that. Sustained. There's not a question on jury is to disregard the argument. You are not angry with Alec Murdoch? I have had anger with him, extreme anger, Mr. Hart Putlin, because of what he did to my law firm, my partners, my client, his, his clients, our clients, what he did to his family, what he's did to so many people. Yes, I experienced a lot of anger. And but you can't walk over. around with anger. You have to find a way to deal with it and move forward. And I have done that. And if you suggest you are dead wrong if you think I've come in here and told this jury something because of money. When we, we're talking about two people who were brutally murdered, then you're, you're, you're headed in the wrong direction. Do you think he did it? And then there was Maggie's sister, Marion Proctor, who had not spoken publicly about her sister's death until trial. When she finally did... Marion didn't have to say why she had been silent for so long. It was so clear that she was scared. In the days and weeks following Maggie and Paul's murder, did Alec ever say anything about the boat case? Uh, we would talk about the boat case. Um, and he was very intent on clearing Paul's name. What did he say? He said that um, his number, number one goal was clearing Paul's name. And I thought that was so strange because my number one goal was to find out who killed my sister and Paul. But that wasn't Alex's concern, main concern? I know he, I know he, I know he must have wanted that too, but it just, I don't know how he could have thought about anything else. He talked about the boat case. Did he ever act 
scared or afraid that the real the real killers were out there somewhere or anything like that, or was he concerned with the boat case? We were afraid. We didn't know what was going on. Uh, my family was scared. I was scared for Alec and um, Buster. I felt like they needed protection. Um, I think everybody was afraid, and. Um, Alec didn't seem to be afraid. Another important factor in this trial was the way Culleton County and the city of Walterboro welcomed the public and the media into their home. The high level of transparency and cooperation offered by Clerk of Court Becky Hill and her staff was fundamental to building public trust in the proceedings. And then there was Judge Newman. He was fair, he was wise, and he was considerate. If the judicial system has a soul, it resides with this judge. In Ellick's final moments standing before the court, Judge Newman explained his reasoning behind the sentencing, and in doing so, he spoke a truth so real that his words continued to echo in the minds of all those who watched. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. And every night. I'm sure. And they will continue to do so. And, and reflect on the last time they looked you in the eyes. As you looked the jury in the eyes. Um, I don't know a um, person who's always been such a gregarious, friendly person. And cause her life to be tangled in such a weave web, uh, such a situation that you um, yours have spun into, um, and it's so unfortunate because you had such a lovely family of such friendly people, including you, and, and to go from that to this. You know, your license to practice law has been stripped away from you. Turned from lawyer to witness. And now uh, have an opportunity to make your final appeal uh, as, a, as an ex-lawyer. And it's almost, uh, it's really surprising that you're waiving this right at this time. And if you opt to do so, it's on you. I, you're not compelled to say anything. But you have the opportunity to do so. And I tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife Maggie. And I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son, Paul Paul. Well, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, 
the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills, maybe you become another person. I've seen that before. The person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it's the same individual. Um, we'll leave that at that. At the end of our conversation with Creighton Waters, he reiterated the reason he and his team fought so hard for justice in this case. Yes, we believe the future of our judicial system was on trial along with Alec Murdoch. David took on Goliath and required everyone, from Alan Wilson to sled agent Paul Greer to PMPD CFO Jeannie Sackinger to stand up for what's right and to tell the truth, even when it is terrifying. We want one system for all people. One system means fairly applied accountability. And one system means all victims will have a chance to see justice prevail in their cases. Here is Creighton. I just always try to come back uh, to the fact that, you know, this, this case is has gotten so much attention and the process of the case, deservedly so, you know, deserves talking about and, and attention. And those of us, you know, fortunate enough to work on it are getting attention. But, you know, always try to remember that, you know, what's at the core of this thing is, you know, the brutal murders of Maggie and Paul. And that is, I think, needs to always be the last word. I'm just very, very grateful that all the people that worked on this, um, that it allowed that jury to give them a voice. And you know, I think that should always be the final thought when we talk about this case. We've been asked a lot of questions about what we plan to do now that the trial of the century has ended. While we have big plans to expand our particular style of journalism to cases across the country, cases that would be solved if not for local corruption in law enforcement and other government agencies, we still have a lot of work to do with this case. Over the next few months, we will be redoubling our efforts into our investigation of the Stephen Smith case. Sandy, Stephanie, and the entire Fifth and the entire Smith family deserve to see justice in this case, which should have been solved in 2015. Here is Sandy. 2023 is Stephen's year, and he will get justice, and I will never stop fighting for my baby. If anyone has information on Stephen Smith's murder, please contact SLED or Crime Stoppers. Thank you. We will also push hard for there to be public accountability for all of those involved in the alleged cover-up in the boat crash investigation. Whether it's law enforcement officers or friends of the Murdoch family, they must face consequences for what happened. And then there's the bomb threat at the courthouse, the Gloria Satterfield case, Ellick's other financial crimes. What happened with that juror who was excused right before Jim Griffin's closing arguments? 
There's LX Badges and the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office. There's Corey Fleming's case, Russell Lafitte's hearing, and the potential for more charges against Ellick and those in his circle. Stay tuned and stay in the sunlight. On Monday's Cup of Justice episode number 20, now on the new feed, you may remember Liz, Eric, and Mandy talking about The Winding Road and how surreal it was to be recognized by the amazing singer-songwriter Cheryl Crow on Twitter. And for the past six months, I've been searching for the right song to share my appreciation with this phenomenal team once the murder trial was over. So naturally, this next bit was fate. Thank you, Cheryl, for encouraging us. It means the world. Thank you, Mandy, for being a light to so many and helping me and others soak up the sun. Used with permission, details in the description.
The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, produced by my husband, David Moses, and Liz Farrell is our executive editor. From Luna Shark Productions. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.